Today, everyone's favorite wall-crawling Queens native is headed back to the MCU. Happenings in the Upside Down renewed for Season 4 with a possible change of scenery. Yet another version of an H.G. Wells sci-fi classic is headed this time to the small screen. And are the Immortal One and the kiss-stealing, wheelin'-dealin' son of a gun headed back to the active roster? All that and more coming up on this edition of What a Time to Be Alive. I'm Lou, and I grew up in New York City in the 70s and 80s on a steady diet of comic books, cartoons, rock and roll, monster and sci-fi films. Flash forward to the present, and all the geek properties I got picked on for enjoying as a kid are now captivating and creating fans globally in the form of comic conventions, major studio films, and hit series. And the momentum shows no signs of slowing down. My fellow geeks, we have won. And to that I say, what a time to be alive. Yeah! Just what the world needed, another middle-aged white guy talking about movies and comic books. What's up, everyone? I'm Lou Acosta, and you've just downloaded the What a Time to Be Alive podcast. This is episode one. Welcome. Episode one, the, the prequel. The prequel, which will depict a younger, more carefree Lou Acosta playing with the marionettes and wood until his inner demons drive him wild, and he descends into the cold world of technology and delivers... What a time to be alive, episode two. Oh, Jesus Christ. I have just made a Star Wars episode one reference. I have fucking jinxed this show before it's even started. But in all seriousness, chances are what brought you here is an appetite that you, me, and many others share for all things in this geekosphere we all live in. This is episode one, and to be honest, I'm making it up as I go along. So right now, we don't have much in the way of a format. You didn't see that, but I just made air quotes. So we're going to take a deep dive into this amazing culture that's always been our passion. You love comics? Well, hell yeah, I love comics too. And maybe at some point we'll explore that awesome run that Paul Smith had on the Uncanny X-Men back in the 80s and why it was too goddamn short. Did you also think that Macho Man Randy Savage was shortchanged in his run as WWF champion? Well, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. The point is, we're going to have a lot of fun covering all the stuff that we dig and in the process, hopefully, make your shit commute on the L train or however it is you get to work that much easier. Listen, this is the stuff you love. It's the stuff I love. Lock, stock, and barrel. What a time to be alive. Let's get right into it. So I have to backtrack a bit. Unless you've been living under a rock, The biggest story of the summer has been the whole Sony Spider-Man Marvel Studios love triangle. So before we get into current happenings, a little history lesson. Sony has a long, long history with the Spider-Man movie IP. Basically, Sony has owned the film rights to Spider-Man and 900 related Marvel Comics characters since 1998, and at the time, could keep them as long as it releases a Spider-Man movie every five years. So this brings us to 2002 Spider-Man starring Tobey Maguire, and those enjoyed three successful installments. All right, well, two, two successful installments and and one questionable one in Spider-Man 3. Listen, Tobey Maguire, Peter Parker hip thrust, enough said, okay? Then in 2010, Sony reboots the franchise and brings in flavor of the week Mark Webb to direct The Amazing Spider-Man, now starring Andrew Garfield, with another installment to follow in 2012. 
Now, these films, not my personal favorite. Uh, these were a critical all-time low for our favorite wall crawler, and to be honest, at this point, we've seen Uncle Ben die on film more times than Jesus Christ. Flash forward to 2015, Sony strikes this unprecedented deal with Marvel Studios after The Amazing Spider-Man 2 underperforms at the box office. Okay, listen fam, my understanding is that both Sony and Marvel worked out this history-making deal where Sony retained the distribution rights, basically lending Spider-Man to the Marvel Cinematic Universe while developing movies of its own, like Venom. Marvel would be able to use Spider-Man in its cinematic universe while Sony retains the distribution rights and creative control. Sounds simple. Studios are happy, the fans are happy, everything's perfect, right? Wrong. Now, you have to remember that Disney had a major hand in building up this iteration of Spidey in MCU films such as Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, as well as producing Spider-Man Homecoming and Far From Home. Well, things started to fall apart this summer when negotiations between both studios hit a brick wall. Depending on who you speak to, Disney wanted to take a 50% co-financing stake in future Spider-Man films, but Sony, which was really riding high on the success of these films, was unwilling to give up such a large portion of its biggest franchise. Basically, Marvel did the heavy lifting developing Spider-Man. Sony reaped more of the profits, and to be honest, both studios benefited from the agreement. However, when it came time to renegotiate and Marvel was seeking a little more for its efforts, Sony was basically like, nah, we're good fam, we'll take it from here. As a result, in late August of 2019, it was announced that Spider-Man would no longer be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Indeed, my friends, dark days in the Republic. Now, at this point, Sony is hoping that the director of Homecoming and Far From Home, as well as star Tom Holland, return for two more Spider-Man movies. The world is on fire! Social media is inundated with some very upset fans, and the speculation as to the future of the franchise is out of control. Then on September 27th, parents made up and stayed together for the kids. And, you know, it, it like that Blink-182 song. What is it? Um, oh. So here's your holiday. Hope you enjoy this time. You gave it all away. It's, uh, all right, anyway, you get the gist of it. Marvel Studios and Sony Pictures officially announced that Spider-Man will return to the MCU after the studios reached a new deal to continue their partnership. Fans and investors around the world go fucking apeshit. The new deal sees Marvel Studios producing at least one more Spider-Man film and an appearance in another MCU film. Kevin Feige, ever the MCU coxman, made an interesting remark during that announcement saying that, quote, as Sony continues to develop their own Spider-Verse, you never know what surprises the future might hold. Feige, what in the blue hell are you talking about, Feige, you cagey bird? God, it would be so cool if Spidey somehow ushers in the MCU version of the Fantastic Four, much the way he and Black Panther were introduced in supporting roles in Civil War. And, and this would so tie in to the close relationship Spidey has had with the FF, dating all the way back to Spider-Man number one. Hey, true believers, we'll see. The third Spider-Man film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is slated for release on July 16th, 2021. On September 30th, Netflix announced the fourth season of Stranger Things and simultaneously dropped a teaser that suggests something darker and somewhere different. The 45-second teaser gave us what looked to be the familiar Stranger Things animated logo sporting a giant number four behind it, accompanied by the John Carpenter-inspired synthesizer theme music. However, halfway through we get a couple of white negative logo flashes and some audible disruption as everything drops to black, and we hear the sinister growl of the Demigorgon. The Stranger Things logo hard cuts back into what looks like the upside-down version of Hawkins behind it, 
and as the scene slowly zooms out, upside-down vines start to grow over the logo, extinguishing the familiar red neon glow and rotting it before everything hard cuts to a title card reading, We're not in Hawkins anymore. Stranger Things creators the Duffer Brothers have commented on Season 4 adding, quote, It's gonna feel very different than Season 3. In a recent interview with Entertainment Weekly, which, by the way, is now a monthly publication, Matt Duffer explains that the fourth season could see things moving into areas outside Hawkins. Fans may remember shifting locations briefly in Season 2, which placed Eleven in Chicago in an episode. Either way, judging from past release patterns, Season 2 came 15 months after Season 1, and Season 3 came 20 months after Season 2. So sit tight, kids, because it could be late 2020 or early 2021 before we see a new season of episodes. Either way, Duffer Brothers, if somehow, someway, you find yourself listening to my little podcast, I've said it before that the Stranger Things kids would be my exact age in current day. That being said, if you ever decide to move the story into current day, in 1985, I looked just like Dustin. There is a photo of a chubby preteen me with my yellow and green Little League uniform on with my uncontrollably curly hair popping out of my trucker hat. If I can find this photo, I will post it on the Instagram account for the show. Um, I'll be plugging the Instagram account at the end of the show, don't worry. So I'm going to look for this photo and you guys tell me if I'm not a dead ringer for Dustin in 1985. And that photo of me is authentically 1985. I don't care if it's the stinger on the very last episode of Stranger Things where middle-aged Dustin is, is now a successful Stephen King-type author and he's typing the last line in his suspense novel. They were my friends. They were our times. And not to this day would anyone ever believe any of us. But then again, Stranger Things have happened. He takes off his glasses, hits save on his word doc, and then goes out onto the lawn to frolic in the autumn leaves with his children and golden retriever. And scene! Duffer Brothers, I'm your guy. And I have all my own teeth. Fire up your ass, Jeeves! The first trailer for BBC One's War of the Worlds miniseries has officially made contact on the interwebs. Set in Edwardian England, which for you history buffs puts us right before the Great War, which is World War One, not WW2, the big one over here. Reported to be the most faithful adaptation of the H.G. Wells alien invasion classic, the released official synopsis states that this new adaptation of H.G. Wells' seminal tale, the first alien invasion story in literature, follows George, played by Rafe Spall of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and his partner Amy, Eleanor Tomlinson of Alice in Wonderland, as they attempt to defy society and start a life together. Krypton's Rupert Graves is Frederick, George's elder brother, and Robert Carlyle, formerly of Trainspotting and 28 Weeks Later, plays Ogilvy, an astronomer and scientist. The War of the Worlds tells their story as they face the escalating terror of an alien invasion fighting for their lives against an enemy beyond their comprehension. Listen, I don't care how many times you tell this goddamn story, I love the trailer, I'm in. And you gotta you gotta love the one title card that is so damned English at, at least on my side of the pond it's a little odd it's a you know white text typical white text over a black background but it says this autumn <laughs> spotted dick no premiere date for war of the worlds has been announced but it's expected to premiere later this fall keeping in the period piece theme Sam Mendes' World War I epic 1917 released a making-of featurette this past week, dropping some serious knowledge on us that the film was in fact shot to look like one continuous take. 
At the 1917 panel in New York Comic Con, Mendez said that not only was the movie designed to be one shot, but it was printed at the top of the script. Mendez also told Entertainment Weekly that he just wanted the audience to be part of every second of the journey with them, describing the film as taking place in two hours of real time, wanting the audience to walk every footstep and breathe every breath with the characters. Describing it as being an emotional decision as much as anything else, it posed a bunch of pretty tricky technical problems, but that was part of the joy of it as well. Okay, so besides All Quiet on the Western Front, Paths of Glory, and of course Lawrence of Arabia, I have to say there aren't too many films, recent films, that depict World War I. But I feel in recent years, having just had the centennial anniversary of World War I in 2017, that it's opened creatives up to telling these stories about the Great War. Most recent years, World War I was the backdrop for films like Wonder Woman, and of course the amazing documentary by Peter Jackson, They Shall Not Grow Old, which I highly recommend. One thing is for sure, with films like 1917, Joker, and the upcoming and rumored Scorsese mob classic The Irishman, next year's Oscar deck will be fully stacked. Okay, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. This past Monday saw the season premiere of the longest-running weekly episodic program in television history, you guessed it, WWE Monday Night Raw, and a much-publicized drop-in by Hall of Famers Hulk Hogan and the Nature Boy Ric Flair did not disappoint. During Ms. TV, which for you older fans is a Piper's Pit-type interview segment hosted by WWE superstar and reality show sensation The Miz, he announced that his guest would indeed be the immortal one and the kiss-stealing, wheeling-dealing, whoo, son of a gun. Both coming out to tremendous crowd pops, the segment kind of made for an awkward time where Flair was hurling some shoot-type barbs at Hogan, and it seemed for the most part that Hogan was actually being a pretty friendly and respectful guy to Flair, and that Flair was just kind of being a straight-up dick. This, of course, revealed itself to be a work as both Hall of Famers shook hands and proclaimed that they're not spring chickens anymore. The crowd, of course, is shouting the ridiculous, one more match, one more match, which no doubt would literally kill either participant. It's at this point that the Hall of Famers announced that at the Crown Jewel event in Saudi Arabia, there will be a five-on-five tag team match with Hogan in one corner for Team Hogan and Flair in the corner for the other team, you guessed it, Team Flair. Then they just start stacking the ring with members of their respective teams. You guys know the spiel. Sounds like a glorified classic Survivor Series setup. Team Hogan's captain is fan favorite Seth Rollins, and Team Flair's captain is third-generation wrestler Randy Orton. Other than that, there's nothing really worth reporting from the premiere. Oh, well, Brock Lesnar did kick Rey Mysterio's son's ass, who was, quote, at ringside, in something that I and the audience could not care less about. Listen, I'm a WWEF, whatever you want to call it, fan from way back. However, I just find myself tuning into Monday Night Raw less and less. Three hours is an ambitious undertaking for any live scripted program. But I just feel like the newer characters don't endure as much, and that's because the writing isn't on point. However, with the rise of new fan-friendly independents like AEW which just made its network debut on TNT, and also Ring of Honor, and the now-reborn and refinanced, it seems, NWA also premiering a streaming web-based show, there's never been a better time to be a wrestling fan and a wrestler. I think the rise of these organizations is a good thing for Vince McMahon to keep in his peripheral. Competition tends to bring out either the best or the absolute worst in everyone, 
There is no in-between. One final note, this past week I got to take in Todd Phillips' Joker on opening day. Now of course, no spoilers, at least not yet. Maybe on the next episode I'll hit you all with a spoiler pack review, but for right now, because the film's not even one week out, I'll give you my brief, spoiler-free take on Joker. Okay, I absolutely love this film. Acting, sound, script, set design, color grade, I loved every single detail. Unabashedly an obvious love letter to Scorsese's gritty classics Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy, make no mistake, Joaquin Phoenix is the truth in Joker. A true masterclass in acting, I wouldn't even call this a comic genre film, but just a very well-made film about what happens when internal and external chaos shake hands. I know there's a lot of concern and controversy surrounding the film. I mean, the first thing I saw when I entered the theater was a huge sign at the entrance stating in big block letters, no face paint or masks permitted. But my takeaway is this character, this story, albeit ultimately shrouded in chaos, this film speaks to behavioral health and mental health awareness. I've encountered nothing but debate regarding the film. But that debate never questioning whether it was good, bad, or if the story was even valid. And I think that's what great cinema, great films are supposed to do. Make you think. Elicit some sort of healthy debate. And this film has certainly made me think a lot about where I stand with the character and my own thoughts of what this film is actually trying to say. I actually did have a friend ask me if it's a good film for 11-year-olds, and to that I say a resounding no. People, how can I make this clear? Even though this film is called Joker and is based on the DC character, it's much deeper, very emotionally mature, and at times disturbing. And if that R rating doesn't spell it out for you, I will. It's not for kids. Now, the overall question I've been asked is, how does Joaquin's portrayal and performance rate up against Heath Ledger's? I know it's the nature of the beast to compare. I mean, we've been doing it for 50 years between 15 fucking James Bonds. But it's really unfair given that they're two different films, two different depictions, two different stories. Hard-pressed if I had to make a choice, I would definitely say on par. And that is saying quite a bit. I can tell you that this film has stayed with me. Again, there are a number of things I'd like to speak to, but this is a spoiler-free review. But if you can't take my word for it, see for yourself as Todd Phillips' Joker is now in theaters nationwide. That's it for this edition of What a Time to Be Alive. Now, I don't profess to be an expert on anything. So, if you enjoyed the show and you agree, great. If you disagree, that's okay too. Just don't harass me, man. But by all means, feel free to email me with your comments, suggestions, well wishes, and insults at watbashow at gmail.com. That's right, it's our own acronym. It stands for What a Time to Be Alive. That's watbashow at gmail.com. W-A-T-T-B-A-Show at gmail.com. And follow me on Instagram at, you guessed it, watbashow. If you liked what you heard, hit that download button and subscribe. And guys, I just have to say that whether you're an older fan who grew up reading comic books and watching cartoons that a lot of hit films and shows are now based on, or you're a newer fan whose sight unseen just has a rabid passion for these amazing properties that are being thrown at us every single day, it's hard to believe. But all the things we love and are enjoying were at one time these very niche and protected underground closet passions. Today, whether it's a cinematic universe, a, a genre of animation, TV and streaming series, hell, streaming platforms even, or yes, even a podcast. One thing's for sure, the playing field has gotten a lot bigger. The canvas, huge. And the audience, massive and growing larger every day. I named this show What a Time to Be Alive because it's exactly how I feel. 
We live in a world where Star Wars continues and now spans generations, where you could sit in a theater with 300 strangers and cheer as Mjolnir flies through the air into Captain America's hand, and where the average Joe who's passionate about all these things can podcast about it and be one of thousands who do. It's not so much the things we love, but the love we have for them. And to that I say, what a time to be alive. I'm Louis Costa. Thanks for putting up with my shitty New York accent. We'll catch you next time.